Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion, so slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. I can tell who's the imposter just by watching the Zoom. Like my sister gets this grin on her face. And <laughs> do you know this game, Brian? Yeah, my drum line has been because we're doing drum line for marching band now. It's basically day Ian's class, and so they've been asking. So we've got uh, we've actually got Julie Davila is going to do a guest appearance tomorrow night, which is going to be awesome. Yep. And then we're going to do we're going to play Among Us, and then my another buddy of mine is it off so but they've been asking they're like we should get on discord and we should do this so yeah i i've played it once and i was awful at it like i immediately they kicked me off they thought i was the impo- like no i'm i'm just new it's really fun yeah I, I understand the hype a little bit i've had some fun but the weird thing dude is that game's been around for like two years yeah and then it it's just, not new right it uh it's caught caught fire yeah. So. Oh, there's a there's an orchestral excerpt in the news today. Sorry. Oh wow. Yeah. So trigger warning for anyone who's been to you know <laughs> been to grad school. <laughs> so hey there everybody. It's what is it? It's November fifteenth, twenty twenty. It's at Percussion two sixty two. My name is Casey Cangelosi. I'm hosting today, and I'm kind of co-hosting with Brian Nosny. What's up, Brian? Hey guys. And also Ben Charles. Hey Casey. And Carly Vigna, how's it going? Hey, Casey. It's going all right. How are you? Good, thanks. Hey, did you all go to PASIC? Not not at all. I, <laughs> I signed up. I did everything. I've, I've seen two sessions so far. Oh, wait. No, sorry. Three. I just watched our buddy Bill Schaltis. He did a fundamentals timpani thing. So it's nice you can go back and watch. And yeah, I mean, considering it's COVID, considering we couldn't meet in person, I, I think they did a, a really good job. So yeah, way to go, Bill Schaltis. That was really cool. And yeah, I mean, we had an audition day. We had a regular day of school that Friday, so I, I haven't been to much yet, but uh, I, I plan on going back and watching, so hopefully we can chat about PASIC a little bit. Casey, I was going to check. I think that they're online like till the end of the year, though. Like You can go and watch the archives, I think. Am I right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my plan. It was a super busy weekend for me, too, but knowing like they're there, I can't wait to binge watch all the all the sessions that I missed. Um, and catch up on that because it sounds like there was great stuff. I got little invitation messages like, hey, can you come to a little Zoom hang or whatever? And I was imagining everyone like the background is the Weston Hotel. <laughs> you know, on Zooms, like the Weston uh, Hotel. Someone was Shula's. Or Shula's, yeah. Someone actually made a, a a soundtrack of the exhibit hall that you could put on. And it was just like <laughs> a bunch of like badly rendered Porgy and Bess excerpts and like marching snares oh. almost just stacked on top of each and other. Ki and kids just going, did you catch, did you catch, did you catch, did you catch, did you like, that was, that listen was to Matt that Ridge. and look at the, yeah. Isn't that the only Ridge. thing we don't miss for live that. music? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I do not, I do not miss that at all. Hey, so we are releasing on December 17th and a couple things in the news 
It was, well, it was Beethoven's baptism. This is really nerdy news week, sorry. Baptism of Ludwig von Beethoven in 1770. And did you all know his exact birthday is not known? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's not interesting. Yeah, right. Not too surprising. Um, yeah, Zanakis' birthday, not exactly known, although it's pretty close margin. So yeah, when you look up Beethoven's birthday, in fact, the only reason we know the month and the year is because of the baptism record. So yeah, we, we know the month was December, but we don't know the date. We just know that baptism was, was then. So interesting. So what else? 1957, the last episode of the Nat King Cole show airs on NBC. So we talked about the premiere of that show and we talked about the racial significance and all the things that happened. Well, not all of them. We talked about a handful of things that happened around the Nat King Cole show. That was pretty cool. So I thought it was also interesting that also on a Thursday, a year later, uh, of course, different month, but Thursday uh, was the last show. And you guys know, again, nerd alert. We have an excerpt premiere. Do you guys remember? Uh, do you remember? Let's see. Wait, I don't need the music. What am I doing? Do you remember this? You know that one? Yeah. Think so yeah, Shasti Ten premiered, uh, and uh, that's one of our our fast and loud snare drum excerpts, 1953. So there's your news for the day. And now I want to introduce our guest. He got his doctorate from Indiana University. He's finishing a master's degree in kinesiology. He's performed with Alabama Symphony Orchestra, Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, and many, many, many others. He's worked with the very known Emmy Award-winning group Blast, who I'm sure we all know a lot about. Of course, there's huge percussion enthusiasm through Blast. And he's assistant professor of trombone. Wait, that can't be right. Trombone at Troy University. Brian, that's what is that? Some kind of joke? This is a percussion percussion podcast it's real funny Brian this was this was news to me I'm sorry <laughs> he's assistant professor of trombone at Troy University and his name's Jason Solomon how's it going Jason going well thanks so much for uh you know for having me I I must have accidentally clicked the percussion on the drop down menu and so that might have been my mistake but yeah I I, I am a trombonist sorry. you're a percussionist now okay fair enough I I, I did take percussion techniques classes in my uh, in my schooling, so you know mm -hmm. that counts. How was your How was your buzz roll at the end of it? I, I did okay. I did all right. You know the the the, the diddles and the rolls were okay. The, I was not very good at flams because that's very different for brass players. We try to line up everything really closely, like perfectly. So the concept uh -huh. of having it not be lined up perfectly was really a mind <laughs> for me. Cool. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, hey, I, I was going to open by just saying you, you worked with Brian Nosny. What was the hardest part about that? What was the most difficult thing about working with Brian Nosny? Oh, we don't have enough time for this. Yeah. How long is your show? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you know what? I, Brian was actually uh, awesome to work with. And he, um, it, ironically, there there was another individual who worked there who knew both of us and said, "Hey, you know, you, if you need anything, you know, contact the, this person, contact Brian." And when I got there, I had like a big moving truck and all my stuff, and I kind of needed to move everything into the office really quickly. And and I'm not normally the kind of person who reaches out to complete strangers and be like, "Hey, can you help me move?" You know, that's usually not my my thing. But I was really in a pinch given the timing of everything. 
And uh, sure enough, I, I texted Brian. I had no idea who he really was. And he was there like minutes later, you know, helping me like move all my stuff into the office. And he got some other students to help. And it was, um, it was great. I mean, we just, you know, we kind of clicked right from there. And, uh, you cool. know, it was, it was really great working with him the, the time that we had. So I kind of, I kind of miss that bromance, you know, being so local. Uh, it's a, it's a little bit more of a long distance thing now, but. He's, he's, yeah, I've got my own bromance with old Brian Nosny. Hey, Ksenia just showed up. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, I'm so sorry I'm late. Hi, Jason. So nice to meet you. And I'm sorry I missed all the Casey jokes. Hey, I, I hey, we talked about uh, Shostakovich. There was a, yeah, Shostakovich from your, your home country there. My husband. My late <laughs> husband. <laughs> Stupid joke, stupid joke. Jason, what the heck is kinesiology? And I, I mean, I know it's like it's it's human movement, and um, I know it's about that. But what does what does that have to do with music? And how how are you getting a master's degree in it? That's that's really really cool. Yeah, the uh, well, you're right. Kinesiology is the study of human movement, and the the, the I probably the easiest way to explain it to people who wonder like what the through line is with musicians or you know, performing artists is that in order for us to play our instruments, we have to move our bodies you know, in some way, whether it's uh, percussion or voice or conducting or whatever, there's movement that's involved in the body in some way. So uh, specifically within kinesiology, there's a couple of different kind of subsections. Um, the most common one that people think about is more on the like exercise science side or the, you know, the physiology side. And, and though that I, I find that interesting and I've done some, some work on that side, um, I'm more interested in the motor learning and motor control, which is really just a fancy scientific way of saying how we learn how to move and then how we learn how to control our movements. So if you take the word motor and exchange it with movement, it's just movement learning and movement control. And so it's basically a scientific field that's dedicated toward measuring and you know, hypothesizing and testing how people get good at refining movements, whether it's children that are just developing or it's expertise research in athletics or performing arts. It's, it's basically just a field of study that tries to answer the question, how do people get good at stuff? Um, and that's, so that's pretty much the, you know, the short way of kind of describing what it is. Um, but from there, I think it's a lot easier of a sell to understand you know, how it can be applicable to what we do uh, as musicians. Well, and so much of what you, what I've heard of you is, um, it's, it's so much about mental practice and how we practice. How is kinesiology informed? I mean, it's, I mean, cause like I can think of like, oh yeah, hey, don't practice too hard or, or wrong or you'll, uh, you know, injure yourself. <laughs> like, it's, like how is it really informed the whole mental side of practicing things? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think originally if, if you know, and I don't know how far we want to drill down on the, you know, the epistemology of the, 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 the discipline, but um, originally there were sports and people love sports and people wanted to get good at sports. And so there was money being thrown at studies to figure out how people get better at shooting a basketball or jumping a hurdle or, you know, running with the football or whatever. Um, and then there was a point where um, uh, the government kind of, I don't know, we'll say like the 40s and 50s where uh, World War II, you know, was around that time. And so there was um, this interest in justifying uh, the need for young people in school to be physically well and be in pretty good shape, that kind of a thing. 
Uh, and so in some ways it was kind of an effort to make a more ready, you know, workforce in terms of uh, drafting into the army. And so physical education became a subject in school, but then there was a time where people said, well, wait, do we really need that? You know, or how does that work? Like, what do we really need to do to get everybody in shape? And so then the subject, the field of exercise science, you know, came out of that as a way to kind of justify and explain the how and the what and the why behind physical education. So that, that, that's kind of where, you know, that all started. Um, and then for a long time, it kind of stayed there. Um, it's not that performing arts wasn't a part of it at all, but, but the money was clearly dominated on the sports side. And so a lot of the information kind of came from sports and it fed into sports. And so when you think about sports, you know, questions that come up where like, let's say you're doing a football practice and somebody's trying to learn a certain drill or movement on the field, some kind of, you know, formation and the thing that that's the extent of my football knowledge. But, you know, do you do massed practice or blocked practice? Do you do the same thing 10 times in a row and then go to the next thing and do that 10 times in a row and then go to the next thing and do that 10 times in a row? Or is it better to do the first one, the second one, the third one, the first one, the second one, the third one? You know, how do you block things uh, and rotate through things? What's the best way for retention of skill? You know, is it better to have a batter go into a batting cage and just get fastballs? Do they get better at hitting fastballs? Or is it better if they're um, being thrown fastballs and curveballs and sliders? Right. It happens with error parameterization. So you look at all that kind of stuff. And, and they made some pretty, you know, startling or I, I think significant contributions to the way that people practice those sports, right? So um, then there, in, in some ways, it, it kind of got to the point where, you know, in, in whatever sport you're talking about, to some extent, the stronger person is going to have a significant advantage. If you're going to, you know, if you can run faster down the field, it doesn't matter how good the defender's tackling technique is. If they cannot catch you, they cannot catch you. And so you're going to score the points and you're going to do better in that sport, right? Um, so it comes down to a lot of times strength. And they, I think over the past 20 years in particular, people are starting to realize that over on like the performing arts side, whether it's dance or music or, you know, what have you, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. It's not necessarily about being the quote unquote strongest, you know, performer within a, a group of people. There's nuance to the technique that people are using. And so theoretically, you know, either anybody or a vast majority of those people could develop those high level techniques and essentially be the best performer. So that just became from a scientific standpoint, something far more interesting to study. And so in the past 20 years, I think there's been a lot more interest in looking at the performing arts and mm -hmm. looking at how people kind of refine stuff and get good at stuff. And so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but, yeah. but I think that um, you, you find that there seems to be a bit of a, not, I don't want to say a full migration because the money is still coming from sports. You know, that, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that frankly is funding everything. Money and, uh, you know, sports and military are funding everything. And so uh, I think researchers are trying to get creative with, um, tying in performing arts, because that actually leads to a lot of interesting, interesting things in, excuse me, that leads to a lot of interesting things in terms of how people learn stuff and get good at stuff. And that can translate to fifth graders trying to learn science or, uh, you know, stroke patients trying to regain coordination in their limbs or Parkinson's patients uh, developing their gait so that they can walk with, a, you know, better, better success. Um, that, you know, it all kind of feeds into, you know, that side of the fence as well. 
Wow, very, very cool. It's so fun when we discover musicians like you, and, and the only other person that comes to mind is a, a past guest, Molly Gebrian, who I, I went to school with. She's a violist. We had her on the show. She has a minor in neuroscience, and she talks a lot about how you practice, and she's got a wonderful little lecture series online that I was so excited to share with my students this semester. But it, it's really cool because I think so many musicians out there, you know, we, we – do our thing and we do it well, but like we have no idea how you do it, how we do it. <laughs> like we have no idea. It's like Carly, how do you do that amazing thing with your hand, or how do you memorize that? It's like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's like we, usually the answer is like I have no idea. It's, it's interesting, like you know how you, even if you have a ton of knowledge about something, doesn't necessarily mean you can you can do it. But then we meet people like yourself who, yeah, they have the knowledge, and then they they can teach the rest of us how to apply it. Well, and that's that's flattering for you to say, but full disclosure, I think part of the reason why I even went down these rabbit holes was because as a brass player, I had a lot of struggle along the way. There were aspects of playing a brass instrument that did not come easily to me. And I had teachers who were very reputable teachers uh, who, you know, some aspects did come easily to them. So when I ran into these roadblocks, and said, what do I do? You know, a lot of times they would say, well, you know, use more air or, you know, hear the sound in your head. I mean, there's some very basic pillars of the way that we do these things that of course, you know, ring true. But if that's not enough, like if that's not getting the results and I, I need something else, there's something about the way that I'm doing it that's not the same as the way you're doing it. Um, there yeah. are a lot of people out there that I think uh, just, you know, whatever for whatever reason, didn't hit those same struggles, therefore didn't have to work through them, therefore may have a limited repertoire of ways to address those issues. And so, you know, we almost see this divide between the highest level performers and the highest level teachers in that the highest level performers, part of the reason they got that way is because they, they kind of climbed the ladder quickly. And part of the reason that happened is because they didn't really hit all those issues along the way. Things just kind of naturally worked out very well for them. Maybe it was that when they were, you know, five years old, they had a piano teacher who told them to sit up straight. And so they had good posture. It just wasn't an issue for them. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're teaching a graduate student who's got, you know, really slouched shoulders and developing some shoulder pain. And they, you know, they may not know what to say because it's not, not something that, you know, really happened to them experientially. And so um, I, I, I think that the people that are making contributions are often people that just along the way had to find answers to something right. that they weren't able to find through mainstream channels. Uh, so I, I, as, as flattered as I am, I, I, I don't think I'm unique in that. I think a lot of us have had to get creative in how we look at uh, things that have come up. So gotcha. that's kind of where I've come from on it. I just wanted to chime in again. So sorry that I'm late because I think this topic is so fascinating and what you do, Jason, is just so incredible. And uh, I too think that it's uh, much better. Well, it's great to study with someone who is just naturally gifted, but then also with someone who has struggled a lot to overcome issues because again, of what you said, these people know how to give you more concrete things to work on as opposed to those who, you know, just like Casey's best recipe is mango practice. I mean, that works, but you know, Casey, I practice so much and it still doesn't work and I need help. Yeah. But like, look, so like how many people like it's okay. Oh, this, I can't get myself to focus on this for more than five minutes. Oh, I need some magic solution. So let me go do like, let me go read. 
Anders Ericsson's book and grit and let me go spend like eight hours reading like all the inner games of tennis and golf and da da da. It's like wait, if you just like one foot in front of the out in front of the other for uh, one thirty minute stretch, you would figure out how to how to do the the basics. But I think it's Jason so important because when we get to a point where we need deliberate practice, it's like okay, well, what are what are the specific like solutions we need and we need like a, a lot of. Um, a lot of things on the on our utility belt, Ksenia. Yeah, I'm like the fly on the fly tape that can tell people to go this way. You know, I like I, I've taken the time to read all those books and, and take those courses and, and really dive in. Um, and and I very quickly realized that, you know, I'm pretty fortunate that I have the, the, the time and the means to be able to do this, the opportunity to be able to do this. Uh, so I, I think early on, I just realized that I need to do it with a mindset of I'm going to have to bring this information back for a lot of people that don't have the time to take these classes and to read these books and to do these things. And so I think, you know, when we think about like the community of uh, musicians or the community of learners, the community of students, whatever, um, I think we all have a role to play. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, for me, I think just because I was fortunate that I was able to kind of do that, um, I just said, okay, cool, I'll figure out the best way to distill, you know, Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice into five minutes so that I can give that five minutes to somebody and then they can go and maybe get some progress. And if that doesn't work, fine, go read the book, you know, go take four hours and read all the stuff. Um, but if the five minutes is enough to make it happen, because you're right, there is a, there is kind of a cost benefit trade-off to how far down other rabbit holes you go for searching, you know, for those answers. And it is possible that you can go all the way down one of those rabbit holes only to find that what you need is not down there. And then you have kind of lost that time, you know, of just being in the practice room and just essentially chopping out where you may have just worked through it naturally. So it's a real gamble sometimes. And, and I think that maybe that's one of the reasons why it's a bit of a detractor to say, you know, oh, yeah, go do all that stuff because it'll round out your teaching and your playing because, well, yeah, maybe, but it also might be a huge waste right. of time if you don't need it. Well, and I like that you also said in your interview there on the Bulletproof Musician, which we're going to fire to Ben real soon um, to, to, to talk about, but you also said, depending on where the student's at, it's also really valuable, just like, hey, we just got to play. Like, if you're really young, you just got to play, you know? And, I, and I've just, I've encountered students that are like, oh, I've practiced problems. It's like, well, are you practicing much? And if the answer is no, it's like, well, then you don't need some magic solution yet. You just need to, like, practice one foot in front of the other until you know, you're at least beating that five minute distraction mark, you know, and then we can talk about, about special solutions, et cetera. So Ben, tell us, tell us what we, uh, what we were assigned this week. Yeah. So, uh, Casey actually was generous enough to sort of send me a topic to go after this week. And it came from Casey I already mentioned the bulletproof musician podcast. Uh, and it was an interview with Jason called on why fast at tempo practice can be more efficient and effective than slow practice. Uh, this is available online for free. So please go check that out for a much more in-depth uh, discussion than what I'm about to do. But the, the, the proverb that came to mind as I read this, and this is something I use with my students a lot. And the, the proverb is when the only tool in your toolkit is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think so often, like from a very young age, we're taught like slow the metronome down and then slowly click it back up. And the analogy that I always come up with for, for my students is like, I, I would love to be able to play Liszt on piano. I, I think it's just gorgeous, gorgeous music, but I can take La Campanella and put my metronome at 15 beats per minute and play it all day long, but I'm eventually going to run up to a tempo of probably 25 beats per minute where I can no longer do it. 
and I, it's just a roadblock. Like I'm not going to be able to just continually crank it up. And so as I listened to this podcast, like everything that Jason said just rang so true with that little like nugget in my my wisdom that I've accumulated. Um, so I, I figured that I would just sort of hit a few bullet points. And obviously we have the, the master of all this here. Uh, and it's so interesting to hear about the kinesiology background because that gives some more context to it. Um, but just a few bullet points I wanted to point out. Jason talks about this idea of, of at-tempo practice. He says it has to be a strategic, organized method. It's not just like a substitute for, well, you can't do it slow. Just go at it fast and, and see what happens. And so uh, Jason brings up this study of kinesiology where uh, was it, it was some sort of target practice, was it? Like, it's not, like archery or something like that with the trying to work faster? Yeah, so the a lot of the studies are based on uh, the, there were these two researchers, their names were Fitz and Posner, and they were in the I think it was like 54, 1955, something like that. And they essentially had a little stylus and they had like two squares like on the table and people had to tap back and forth and speed and accuracy were measured in different contexts. But I, that's basically, I think, you know, the what you're referring to. Yeah, okay, that's what it was, yeah. And yeah. so, uh, but the problem with the study, Jason says, is that the goal for that study was speed as a concept of as fast as possible, whereas musicians, our, our speed is actually like a, a target point. It's that we don't try and play something that's written at 160 beats per minute at 190 beats per minute, uh, or at least uh, most of us in this room don't. I'm looking at you, Casey. Um, so anyway, uh, so uh, Jason says that uh, what this boils down to is slow practicing can involve some different technical things. Uh, for example, for wind players, breathing. If you have, uh, if you're practicing so slow that a phrase takes twice as long, you might need twice as many breaths. And for percussionists, the thing that came to mind was roll bases on snare drum. You, it, it won't sound like a roll if you're doing it slowly. You know, you can see how that would change. So anyway, uh, then Jason says that it is important to note that replacing an existing habit requires deliberate slow practice. So if you've say learned a note wrong, it is important to go back down. Um, but we, we ended up with this point called chaining, uh, which is something that I do and I've never really thought about a name for it, but Jason uh, stuck a name to it. And basically chaining is the idea that you master a very small bit of music and then you master another small bit and you add them together. And he has different terms like micro chaining, which is like if you had a measure of 16th notes, you would do the first, the first and the second, first, second, third, and so on, versus macro chaining, which is like the first beat, then the second beat, then the third beat, and then you start plumping the, the different beats together. And he has all these other interesting concepts like proportional ma macro chaining that you can listen to the episode for what those mean. Um, but so basically the idea is that you learn small chunks at tempo and you put them together. And I remember a very long time ago, I heard about uh, the marimba player Janice Potter does this in her practice. Um, I can't speak to the accuracy of that statement, but I did hear through the grapevine that she did that. Uh, and then Jason talks about using a metronome and he says that they've done studies and even at like the highest level level of session drum set players, there's always a variance in tempo. That's just a human thing. Uh, so a lot of people are concerned that a metronome will turn you into some sort of robotic player. And he says it will not. Uh, but beyond that, he says it's important to use one that deletes beats so that you don't end up relying on the metronome, which I find is an interesting concept. Like, can you keep in time over the course of seven beats without seven clicks in there? Uh, and then one last thing I wanted to point out from this little podcast that I found very interesting, and I think it sort of might somewhat answer Casey's question about like the, the freshman student that can't practice for five minutes a day. Uh, Jason talks about four different levels of success, survival, 
competency, proficiency, and mastery. And Jason says, you know, you could probably divide it in 20, but it's it's easy for us to boil it down to four. And basically survival is like, hey, Carly, I have a gig tonight. There's a really hard xylophone part and I've, you know, broken my arm. I can't make it. Can, can you be at the gig in an hour? And so at that point, you're just trying to sort of get the notes together. And then obviously you can see how competency, proficiency, and mastery would, would build up beyond that. And I would imagine in Casey's, uh, hypothetical, but maybe not so hypothetical situation of that freshman student, you can tell them like, you you are practicing to survival, you are practicing to get through the next rehearsal or to get through the next lesson when you need to practice beyond that. Now, obviously that doesn't fix the practice, but um, I thought that was an interesting analogy for that. Um, so yeah, does anyone, I, I have a couple other little nuggets of my own personal stuff, but I wanted to open up to Jason or anyone else that wanted to jump in. Well, I was just going to add to that, Ben. It seems like sometimes the challenge is not, I, I don't know what to do when I get in there. It's, I just can't get in there. Yeah. There is that. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's like, that's the, like, there's this mental, mental block, you know, that Caleb? Reason. it's just like a discipline problem. You know, I've had that breakthroughs Caleb? with students where I've simply said, Hey, like practicing doesn't have to be fun. And is that it, Caleb? Is Caleb the one that's it's Caleb all the way? Still, still to this day has his DMA and all. No, uh, but like simply saying, hey, it's okay if like it's not fun. It's work. You know, it can be. It really, it really can be work. And you don't go in the practice room to play for yourself and feel good about about yourself as a musician. You go in there to get better. Um, so, I, and then all of a sudden, like boom, they have like a wonderful week. So yeah, but. I'm glad I'm not the only one having that conversation. I've had that, I feel too many times this semester <laughs> makes me feel a little better practicing is sometimes it feels like work, right? Well, and it's interesting to me too, like, you know, I mean, of course, we've been talking about physicality a lot so far, but when we talk about the mental considerations, like how the heck did Steve Schick memorize Safa, Rebonds, Bone Alphabet, XY, like all his rep. And of course, we know his answer. Likewise, how did uh, Keiko Abe memorize Mermba Spiritual after just getting the score and flying, um, flying to the premiere, memorizing it on the plane and then performing it? How does Morris Palter memorize rebounds? How, how, like, and they all have the same answer. Well, I start with the first note, then I go to the next note. It's just like one foot in front of the other, you know, until they're until they're done. Keiko Abe has a photographic memory too, which which helps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I thought also related to this, and I thought I'd ask Jason what you think about this statement, uh, and feel free to rip it apart if it's no good, but it seems like it's, uh, speaking of practice survival, I, I said to a class recently, it's, it's very easy, I think, to waste time in the practice room for very short-term goals, such as a survival goal, like, man, I got to learn this part in an hour. Okay, well, if you got to learn this part in an hour, then there's a very couple of specific things you need to do and only those things to get that done. However, it's very hard, it's like almost impossible to waste practice time on the long term. So for instance, if I just walked over to this snare drum and just played straight quarter notes for two hours, no, no, two days straight, Like, it would be a spiritual awakening, like a John Cage-style, like, enlightenment to do that for two days straight. That would impact all my performances from, from then on. So is that going to help any short-term goal? No, probably not. But is that a waste of time? Uh, it's hard to say if that's a waste of time. No, I feel like it's pretty easy to say. That okay. 
I think that's a waste of time. Awesome. That's <laughs> because you're a percussionist. That's but think like, about well, it. It's funny. You know, it's funny. When you started playing, I was like, oh, that's Shit's Creek. I was like, we just needed a tuba, you know, when I <laughs> yeah. the next scene. But anyway, um, I don't know if you're fans of the show or have seen I like it. the show. Yeah, I'm not caught up, so, but I do like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so, uh, so the research of Anders Ericsson, which is the deliberate practice research, one of the pillars of deliberate practice is that it's supposed to be very challenging and very draining and, and not really gratifying. The gratification may come from, uh, you know, having breakthroughs and having success, but the actual rigor is supposed to be rigorous. You know, I would argue that um, there, there are like five different kinds of like verb, like action verb in terms of practicing and playing and performing and preparing and all that stuff. So if I'm practicing, that means that I'm working on things I do not do well and I wanna get better at those things, right? If I am preparing, that means I am learning repertoire, which is not necessarily the same as getting better as a trombonist, right? There are things, now I may, I may as a byproduct, get a little better at the trombone through that repertoire, but I think there are, there are things that I need to work on that are not necessarily linked with the repertoire. They may exist in the repertoire, right? So there's practicing, and, and then there are times where I might just play for fun, and that's gratifying and it massages my soul and, it, I, and that might help feed my long-term interest in continuing, but that's just playing. That's not necessarily practicing. I'm not necessarily preparing repertoire. Um, and then there's performing. Now performing, I'm not chopping anything out. I'm not getting better at the, now I, again, there are always gonna be byproducts and, and bleed over through categories. Like when I perform, I get a little bit better at performing. Therefore I do get a little better or I might learn some very valuable lessons on the journey. But when I'm kind of thinking about everything, I think that there's practice time, there's preparation time, there's playing time, there's performing time. So I kind of really try to spark, you know, uh, separate those out, you know, when I'm kind of talking. So for me, when I'm talking about practicing, that's absolutely not the fun stuff. That is the bowl of broccoli with nothing on it that I need to eat so I will be healthy and strong. And like, that's, that's what that is for me. Now, if I do a certain amount of practicing, I may then reward myself with some playing, you know, or I may reward my, I may get to reward myself with some performing, you know, so, so there's, there's that. But to tie into your other point about like, and, and I know you just use the example of like, we'll call them quarter notes for days, like on a snare, just single, you know, hits on the snare. I, I think no matter, no matter what we're talking about in terms of short-term goals or long-term goals, there is a, there's just, there's a cost. Any time that you spend doing anything is a cost, and and you know, and and Brian before I, before we kind of got rolling was mentioning that I that I, I deal and I work in practice units, and everything I do is split up into like fifteen minute units of time. Those units are a cost. I can only get so many units in a day. My students can only get so many units in a day. And you could say it's because we mentally get fatigued or we physically get fatigued or we run out of time or you know, we run out of motivation to just go after the hard stuff. But there's a finite resource that we have you know, at our disposal. And it's a little different for everyone. It depends on how motivated you are. It depends on how open your schedule is, whatever. Um, but it's a cost. And so if, if you play two days of like one thing um, that may or may not be like pouring cement into some long-term technical growth, yeah, you're right. You may get that benefit, but I think it might, I, I just, to me, it sounds like it would be way too costly for anybody. Right. Well, I guess, yeah, if you didn't have any specific urgent goals, which I think doesn't apply to any of us. We all do. But it's sort of like, imagine if John Cage said, oh, I have this deficiency in my ear training. 
thus he didn't and he, and he tried to fix it he spent a lot of time fixing it he would just be another boring composer it's like it's because of his deficiency that he didn't fix that he had to be so outward and creative and actually just I know my example is really silly and I don't recommend anyone do that but Giacinto Chelsea the composer Giacinto Chelsea like he's like has like nobody else sounds like that guy he's one of my favorite contemporary composers I mean he was known for when a composer buddy would walk up to a piano and like entertain guests and play a little ditty, he would just go up to a piano and just literally like listen for the universe in that one little note. And that's like, those are the like central pillars in his pieces, like everything. And he do the same thing with gongs. And you know, he's like, he would say there's these central organisms that his whole universe kind of explodes from. That's like a single center pitch. So it's weird. Like, yeah, but he, and then again, he is not a normal composer <laughs> by any stretch of the word. So I, I guess that's what I meant. Like short-term goal. Yeah. Worthless. But would that pay off in some benefit? I, I, I don't know, you know, maybe, like I think about playing Steve Reich and the mental capacity it takes to play, like actually play piano phase, you know, for 20 minutes, play the same thing right. over and over. It's like, man, if you can if you can concentrate on something that simple as quarter notes on a snare drum for a day straight, yeah, you're going to have the mental chops to play all Steve Reich. Um, just a theory, though. I've not tested this. I should test it on some students, see what happens. Well, and it's possible that, I mean, I think the people that will test it are people that have to do that. Like if there's a piece and it's right. on somebody's and they got to learn it then they're gonna they're gonna have to develop the mental chops to really go after that in a meaningful way right. but i think that's different in developing physical technique toward playing the instrument um, of course you know, of course yeah it's not the same as chops that you need to do other things it's a certain type of technique so you're right um for most of us i would say that yeah, that's too costly but if it's on your stand then if it's on your to-do list if it's on your calendar then yeah you got to pay up like you you got to get that so you know, that, that, that's where the environment kind of determines that for you. For sure. For sure. Okay. I haven't been paying attention in the chat. I see you guys are tooling on me a lot. It's all right. We're talking about diapers in the chat. Uh, but speaking of the chat, <laughs> we, we seriously, for one of these episodes, we need to have like a Patreon perk where you, you get the, the chat overlaid on the episode uh, because there was a little nugget from Jason in our little text chat uh, earlier that I wanted to touch on. Jason said, I would argue that if you are having fun, you are just playing, you aren't practicing. And Ksenia kind of was like, can't, can't learning be fun? And I had a, a, little, a little thing I wanted to share about that that I've thought of several times before. Uh, I, I think there's a difference between having fun and enjoying something. And you can enjoy work, but having fun to me is something different. And I think it's it maybe my, uh, I, I'm just being too like pedantic about this or something, but I, I have said many times before, like, I don't, I don't find practicing fun. I find performing fun. I find practicing maybe rewarding and enjoyable, uh, but I, I don't find going into the practice room under terrible lighting all on my own with earplugs in and a metronome on my phone. I, that's not my idea of like a good time. Um, so, but one thing that, and it's, I, that's just my opinion. I'm not trying to say that I'm like right on that, but <laughs> one thing that springs up and I, I've thought about doing this with my students, but I've never actually done it. I've actually thought about banning the word play for music. So you can perform music, you can rehearse music, you can practice music, you can record music, but playing music to me, like conjures up an image of just like a drum circle, uh, which it's fine, but like in, in the college practice room, I don't know that like we need like a bunch of like people sitting around in a drum circle. So I don't know, I, I'm sure Ksenia will disagree with me on this, but 
and I, I'm not like sticking by that as a hard rule or anything. To be clear, I'm not. I like, can't. I can't stand hippies, Ben. But but you know, like I don't know. It's just like to me, like that's like as a Western classical musician, I'll call myself. That's like to me, I I don't have fun in the practice room. It's just kind of what I'm trying to say. But we've talked. We've spent so we've talked so many times about the value of play. That whole like idea. Yeah, I I guess I'm just not a very fun. Person. You've just been hating that idea for years. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's why I'm. I'm skill. Yeah, I'm, I'm approaching it with so much caution because, like, like when you say it out loud, it's like, what do you mean you can't play music? Like, you can't have fun playing music. It's like, no, 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 that's like not not what I mean. I'm specifically talking about in terms of like we're talking about practicing here. So I guess maybe that's what I'm saying is it's important to me to divorce like the idea of like playing music and practicing music, which sure. I think. A point maybe that's like a better way of saying it if that makes sense. and i i would i would take this to a direction of um maslov's hierarchical needs you know then something that we're anyone who's taken a psychology course in college has probably been exposed to this but or, or like a grad music ed course or something where um you know to to reach that level of self-actualization which is kind of like the highest level of you know satisfaction you know in one's life it starts with basic needs you know food air water that kind of thing and then it kind of goes up from there I think the ultimate goal is that we all get good enough to where we're just playing. Like if it, you know, if your practice is getting you to a level to where you can play anything, then it is just playing when you go to play that thing. And then when you find things that you can't play well, then well, okay, I gotta go practice so I can, you know, get this thing. But wouldn't it be great if you just got to the point to where you are just playing all the time? And so, um, so I think that that's, you know, an important distinction that it's maybe it's like that aspirational goal, that horizon is to get to the point to where you're just playing it. But the truth is, you know, when we get to the point to where we're just playing, I, I, I think that that means we're not necessarily getting better. And so what I find is that I do find gratification when I go to the practice room and I go after the nitty gritty. And because I, there's, a, there's a bit of a dopamine hit when I come up with a solution or I make a breakthrough on it. Um, and I feel good about the progress that I make. Um, and that's what we want all of our students to have. Like we want them to develop that kind of psychological game where it becomes something where they say, yeah, I'm, I feel gratified by that. But I also know that if I start feeling too good about it, that means that I've, I've got it. Like I need to go find other things that I need to practice. It means that I've, I've kind of turned a corner on that. And that's no longer the thing that is the most efficient thing for me to be doing right now, because there must be weaknesses somewhere else, you know, in this, in a dark corner somewhere that um, would not be fun to go after right now. And I think the players that continue to kind of climb whatever ladders matter to us um, are the players that constantly say, okay, you know, let's get out of the comfort zone. Let's find the things I'm the worst at. Let's always go after those things that are the most frustrating. And, you know, I think for a lot of players, you know, cause we all know players that have a stupid amount of chops, like they have maybe even more chops that they would need, but uh, you know, maybe taking auditions is something that they haven't really just figured out the mental game for. And so for them, that's something they would need to practice, but they don't seem to go in that direction effectively enough to then you know, kind of break through and you know, start advancing or win those jobs or whatever. Um, so in a way, if they're just continuing to like chop out on Porgy, you know, then maybe that's not practicing for them anymore because they mm. fine on that. You know? So I, I do think that it all kind of ties in and, you know, we, I'm sure we all kind of maybe use slightly different words or, you know, kind of approach it with, you know, a slightly different take verbally, but I think we're all basically barking up the same tree on it. Well, and it, it just, 
everyone put a few examples in the chat. The one I remember is Pablo Casal saying, I don't remember him saying this. I read it somewhere, obviously. But uh, yeah, it said, if you're sounding good in the practice room, you're not practicing right. Um, so it's that, that, I think it's down that, that same thread. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I've changed on that one because there was a long time, because I had some teachers that said, you know, you use the repertoire to develop the technique because the repertoire tells you what technique you need in order to be successful in the industry. And so they would do it through the repertoire. Um, mm -hmm. I've 180 on that in my, you know, I'm now in my forties and I, I do the opposite of that. I, I, mm -hmm. I, actually, I avoid the repertoire like the plague. So I do not ingrain any lackluster habits within the repertoire itself. And I find other creative ways to just continuing to, to continue to develop my technique so that when I put the repertoire back in front of me, it's fresh and it's not like beaten to death with like mediocre habits. Right. Because I mean, how many people have like a B, like a B rate version of insert percussion excerpt here? Like there's a million people that can play that reasonably well, but to play it like really, really well. I mean, if you have a thousand mediocre repetitions at that rep, uh, you know, of that that piece, it's going to be really hard to train that out and mm -hmm. replace that with a high level habit. So I find that um, if I can if I can avoid the repertoire, or if I can avoid the you know the kind of repertoire that would come up for like uh, auditions. So there are certain solos and certain you know and and pretty much excerpts. I don't really practice at all until an audition comes up, and then there's a list, and then I'll you know I'll hit that list. Um, but I don't, I don't live and breathe. Like I don't play the ride unless I have to. Uh, the ride of the Valkyries is a pretty big trombone one. Um, mm -hmm. I don't touch that unless I have to, because I'm just going to be reinforcing like 42 year old Jason's version of that. And mm -hmm. five year old Jason's going to be way better than 42 year old Jason. So why when I'm 45, would I want to be stuck with those 42 year old Jason habits within that piece that I now have to like train out of that? That's that's going to double the amount of time. That's just not cost effective. And that's when you would engage in a specific type of deliberate practice to get that back to where you had it five years ago, rather than just get up and play it. Not your best. Just talking about the kind of the, like, like what Ben was saying to play, you know, to play music versus to practice music, perform music. Like we're all kind of looking for that motivation at the end of the day. Right. And I know Jason, you and I have talked about, um, uh, is it Doug Yo? Yo from Boston Symphony. He he's yes. got a quote that is on in every one of our practice rooms here, and it's I'm sure all of you probably heard this. That he's got this kind of this feedback loop idea of if you practice, you get better. If you get better, you play with better musicians. Uh, if you play with better play better musicians, you play better music. If you play better music, you have more fun. If you have more fun, you want to practice more. If you practice more, you get better. And so it's this great feedback loop that just works perfectly well. I mean, some of that may be not fun, but it's the it's the thing before or the thing after that's the fun. That's the carrot that allows you to continue forward. And 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 just just to clarify as well, like when I'm teaching beginners, it's all about playing and all about fun because we're just trying to establish habits that going to the instrument is fun. And I think that that you know at some point. Uh, that slowly and, and, you know, best case scenario is we do it without them even noticing that they start to incorporate things that they're practicing. And then they feel that gratification from when they get better and they get to do cooler stuff. And then it's more gratifying, makes them want to get back into that practice room. And then that cycle just kind of organically starts up and kind of takes off. Um, you know, I would never, 
you know, with like a fifth or a sixth grader, I would never say, oh, you know, you got to get into that practice room and eat your broccoli. Cause like th then, you know, 80% of them are going to say, I'm going to go do another activity. I don't really, really want to do this. And so I think it is important that when the student, if we're talking about students and if we're talking about developing players, when they are ready to take the next step, that's when I, as a teacher, will kind of say, okay, we've got to up the game on, you know, the, the, the practice, the not fun part of it, the rigor of it, so you can get to that higher level game that's being played by others. Um, but usually I kind of let students determine that either through their playing or through what they say in lessons or through their practice logs, there is evidence that they are ready to kind of go up to those next levels. And I have some students that aren't, frankly, they just, they're, they're, they, all the evidence seems to suggest that they are fine with the level that they're at. And then, you know, we can argue about how that, how successful they will be in college or whatever, um, you know, in their degree program, or if they fail lessons or whatever, that's a different conversation. But I, I think just in general, when, when players are ready for the next level of commit, I mean, it's like a relationship, you know, when you're ready for the next level of commitment, it's pretty obvious to the people that are in that relationship, you know, or at least it should be. Um, and I, I think it's, I think it's a similar thing really. So Jason, this is perfect since you, you brought up like the practice logs and stuff. Cause I remember when you and I first met, uh, one of the things that I really liked was in watching how you were teaching your students was this idea of the practice units and stuff like that. Uh, and I had already been doing this a little bit with just like these 20 minute, you know, I would practice for 20 minutes. I would have an alarm set. And then when that happened, I got to take a five minute break. And I know that that's, there's actually, I think there's some sort of Japanese technique behind it. It comes from something else as well. I can't remember what, but, um, but then you have it all broken down into like a very, very specific, you have a much more systematic approach that, and I think that it works perfectly for percussionists because we have so many rather different skill sets in a lot of ways to break into. Oh, I got to practice marimba today. And then I also got to work on my snare drum. And by the way, I got to, I got to play crash cymbals on, you know, Romeo and Juliet this weekend. So I got to practice that. I, like, yeah, we have so many different things that we need to practice in a lot of ways that your system works so well. Could you maybe just elaborate on, on that a little bit? Yeah. 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 Happy to. Um, so uh, yeah. So I, I just use the word units because I couldn't think of a better word. So I call them units. But basically for me, a unit of practice is you know, roughly 15 minutes of uh, deliberate practice toward something. Um, and you know, I, so I'm one of two sets of twins. Uh, I have two older brothers that are twins and then I have a twin sister. And so there were four of us all growing up and we all went into different kind of career professions. And, and what my, the eldest brother, I don't want to say my other brother, but the eldest brother, uh, Derek, uh, is a mechanic and he works for a company called Lexus uh, and he lives in Connecticut and he's been working on cars his whole life. He loves cars. He's really great at diagnosing problems and fixing things and good, you know, he's good with people. And so it all works out, right? Well, I learned through him that in the mechanic industry, there's actually something called an ASE master certification where you get certified in eight different categories of automotive repair, whether it's brakes or HVAC or, you know, whatever, um, uh, power steering, you know, transmission, all that stuff. But one of the things that I found interesting in the world of mechanics in terms of how uh, you get billed, like when you take your car in for service, there's a certain way that they bill you and it's called flat rate. And what flat rate means is that when you take your car into, let's say, whatever shop, and you go and get an oil change, they're gonna charge you their shop labor rate for 15 minutes. Now, if there's a, a hot shot mechanic who can do it in four minutes, 
you still pay 15 minutes worth of shop time. So if that shop charges $60 an hour for labor, you're paying $15 in labor for that oil change. And it doesn't matter how long that oil change takes. If the, if the person doing it ends up getting like explosive diarrhea and has to go to the bathroom and they come back 45 minutes later and they can't find the oil filter and it ends up taking like an hour and a half to change your oil, it still only costs 15 minutes. And I think there's something that is uh, really great about the fact that um, it's, it's a standard rate. So in my own practice, I said, okay, I'm gonna figure out what I can do in 15 minutes on such and such a topic. So let's say articulation, right? I'm gonna come up with a bunch of little exercises, two, three minutes each, whatever. And if I do all these exercises, it takes me about 15 minutes, right? Maybe 17 minutes, cause I'm still learning it. But after a couple of days, I can work it down to about 15 minutes. All right, something's a little rusty or something doesn't speak well. And I wanna take a little moment. It might take me 16 minutes. I still bill it as a 15 minute unit of time. So one of the things that's great about that is I don't have to micromanage the counting. It's like, that's 15 minutes in my mind. It's one unit, it's done. Like the end of, like that's the end of the conversation. Now I, I do it on um, uh, a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And when you go to the bottom of each, like so every day has like a bunch of spots where I can add in like the units and type in what I do and all that stuff. And so if I do the same kinds of exercises, I can just copy and paste. So that saves time. But then also at the end of every day, I made it so it auto totals the number of blocks that I've entered information, essentially done practice, right? So if I do six units, if I do four units, if I do 10 units, and then all I have to do is highlight that row and I can look up a week or a month or a year and say, and then the, the Excel spreadsheet will tell me, oh, you've practiced 742 units, you've averaged 4.2 units a day over you know, these whatever. And the thing that's really great about that is that with my studio at school, um, everybody has an Excel spreadsheet and then they've shared it with me through our OneDrive, which is like the Google sharing whatever for our university. So when I sign into a lesson, I'm looking at their practice spreadsheet and I'm able to say, okay, well, your seven day average is 3.4, but if you look at your you know, 100 day average, it's only you know, 2.8. So you, you've been practicing a little more this week compared to your regular amount. So you know, things are probably gonna be sounding better. Or I can say, you know, like let's say they play an etude and it sounds like that, it just sounds bad. Well, we can look back and say, well, how many units did you get on it? And they could say, oh, okay, well, I only got three units on it. Oh, okay, it sounds like you've done about three units on it. This is gonna be a 10 unit piece. You need seven more units on this before it's really gonna start to lock in. So on the one hand, it makes it very clear when you're doing the work or when you're not doing the work. But on the other hand, you can cut yourself some slack when you look back and see that you're just, you're just earlier in the journey than you thought. And there are times where students can get really discouraged because in their mind, they've done all this work on X, Y, Z. But if you look back and you actually just count it, you can say, no, you actually aren't that far along yet. You're only 10 units in, this is gonna take you 50 units. And then they could say, oh, okay, all right. Well, if I'm getting three units a week and I gotta get 40 more units, like then it becomes a thing that, you know, you can kind of just plan out uh, like emotionally and psychologically as well. And I also really like it because yeah, I get some students, that, I don't know if you have this, but I get students that if they don't make the top ensemble, they get a little salty, you know? And they're, oh, Billy made the top ensemble and I didn't make the top and well, I could say, well, you know, Billy's averaging about 6.4 units a day over the past four months. And uh, let's look at your practice log. Oh, you're about 2.7. So Billy's just out practicing you, you know, you're just getting outplayed. And it, it just takes away all of the ego and the emotion that can very easily be attached to some of those things that we really value kind of going up through the system. So, so I have found it really helpful for me 
but I've also found it really helpful for my students in my studio who, and they're all at different levels of play and they're all in different places. You know, and I have some students that just aren't used to writing anything down. So in those first couple of weeks, they'll be like, you know, three units, like total. And they probably lied about two of them, right? They're just <laughs> not practicing. And so from there, what I can do, and, and just to tie in some music ed terms, because Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, you know, if a student is a three unit per week student, my goal is to get them to an eight unit per week student. Let's just try to add one unit a day for a couple of days. When they become an eight unit student, then my goal is to get them to maybe a, a, a 12 unit student. And then next thing you know, it kind of starts feeding and feeding and feeding. And the more units they get, um, the more, the better they get, the more gratifying it is. Maybe they, but you know, they get into that higher ensemble. It's more fun to play. They want to practice. They start getting, you know, when they've got three units a day, six days in a row, and then they get to that seventh day. I think there's something psychologically that makes us want to fill in those three blocks, you know? And so I think there could be like a, a quasi motivational factor with it as well. So that, that's just some of the ways that I've kind of used this whole unit thing and the practice log thing. Uh, but for me, it also keeps me honest, you know, um, it, there's a field of study called heuristics, which looks at how people solve problems, right? And, and actually the most common ways that it's been studied are animals foraging for food, speed dating, and games of chance, like gambling, right? And one of the things that's interesting about the animals foraging for food is that they look at like birds, right? They like fly up to a shrub and start eating berries off the shrub. Well, at some point they've eaten like X number of berries off the shrub. And then they look over and there's that shrub over there and that shrub is full of berries. And so at some point they've recognized that that shrub is a greater concentration of food and resource. So I'm gonna fly over there. And they bail on that first shrub some birds will eat all the berries, every last berry, and then they will fly over to the other shrub. Some birds will eat a couple of berries and they'll be like, oh, what's over there? Shiny object, right? And this kind of relates to an explore versus exploit paradigm, or some people might refer to it as like ADD OCD, where some people are gonna eat every last berry. They're gonna play the quarter notes for two days on the snare drum, and they're not gonna get to all these other things in the practice room that they really need to get to. So I bring this up because I, I learned pretty early on that I am on the OCD side. I am that like I, I am a card carrying member of like that side in terms of the way that I just approach practicing without thinking about it. So I realized that if I do 15 minute units and I set a timer and when the timer goes off, I move on to something else that keeps me from digging down these rabbit holes of spending an hour on lip slurs and never getting to articulation or getting to intonation because I need to get to those things, right? So if I were a percussionist, I could imagine that if you need to do 15 minutes of xylo and you need to do 15 minutes of snare and you need to do 15 minutes of you know, water gong and you, you know, um, it could be a way that for some students who would just chop out on marimba all day long, it gets them to kind of switch gears in, in, in a more balanced manner, more distributed manner. So, you know, it seems like it helps a lot of people. If you're ADD, then you can work up the ability to last 15 minutes on a thing, right? You know, and like there can be a challenge to that. And then eventually you can kind of work up to that skill. If you're more on the OCD side, it can keep you from falling into those rabbit holes. So either way, it kind of brings everybody to more of the middle, which I think is a good, a, a more productive place to be, you know, so. Uh, it's, it, oh, you muted Jason. I, I feel like that was a lot. I feel like I just did a big data dump on that. So I hope that wasn't too much. No, that was excellent. I was going to say, are all trombonists this informed? We need to have more trombonists on the show. Percussionists never to say any of this stuff. This is really great. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, 
I'm sure that there is a, a wide variety of trombonists. I don't know how to avoid those those hangs. Uh, I think it's I think it's interesting how a lot of a lot of folks who who, who describe their uh, practice um, recommendation for students and they have these like really good thought out fine routines. They discover them through teaching. Like you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Like few people who report on you know Anders Ericsson's book or Angela Duckworth's book. They they say like here's how I here's how I did it you know here's how I achieved but it's people who've achieved and then are saying like hey this makes sense to me I relate to this just speaking to like how meticulous how methodical do you be or are you just an automatic um, type of practicer guys I can't follow the chat I have no idea if like there was a me or not was there can, any? We, I, can we actually wrap soon because I gotta go practice my water gong tonight uh, but fifteen I minutes <laughs> I was gonna say fifteen minutes is more. Yeah. Than Probably, that's well, probably I, as much water gong as I've ever practiced. I, I will say that there are several things that I practice that I only do like three minutes of it. And so huh. I fit five of those things within a 15 minute unit of time. So it might huh. be three huh. minutes of water gong, three minutes of some other obscure instrument. Help me out here, Brian. Uh, three minutes of, I don't know, water Rocky. triangle, prepared <laughs> piano, water bass drum. <laughs> Uh, ben, I think you're up. Yeah, well, I just I had a couple things, and one I think is a good way of sort of summing up what what Brian started talking about with that little practice room mantra that they have on the walls, and Jason's been talking about. Uh, one thing I tell my students a lot is like we think of practicing as like as this as moving your wrists, but also like you you practice practicing, like practicing is a, a mental thing, and like uh, you know someone like Steve Schick can probably go and have a six hour practice session, but a college undergrad student, I don't think will get that much out of sitting in a practice room for six hours straight. Um, and then I had one other thing. I, I wanted to put something out there and see if anyone else has anything to add. That that little proverb that I brought up about when the only tool you have in your toolkit is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Uh, a lot of the time when I have students to get stuck on something, I try and pull out a different practice technique. And are you guys familiar with the penny practice technique? Has anyone ever heard of this? So like, if you're unfamiliar, basically there's like this like legend and it's probably true somewhere, but there's a famous violinist and every time he went to practice, he took a bag of a hundred pennies and he would dump them out on the stand and he would play a difficult passage correctly. One time he would move a penny over, he would play it again, move a penny over. Uh, and then if you make a mistake and you mess up, you don't move one penny back, you move all the pennies back. Uh, which can sort of simulate performance pressure. And by the time you get to the 99th repetition, you you do not want to miss that note and have to move all pennies back and, and start over. Um, and obviously a hundred is quite a bit. I usually start students on like five or 10 with a very short passage. But uh, if you can imagine doing that with like Porgy and Bess and you build up larger and larger sections with more and more pennies to the point that you can play the entire xylophone excerpt 100 times through completely error free. Uh, and it, the penny thing really with the the rare occasions when I do it, which admittedly is very rare, like it it absolutely forces concentration. I, I am never so focused as when I'm doing that. Um, and we've talked about the what I call the additive practicing method, which is what you know we call practicing at tempo we discussed with Jason. But does anyone else have any like unique practice methods that they suggest to students and also practicing with timers, which is another thing I do. I just do the George Hamilton greens. Like I have that same, I've heard that same thing. I used to have a, a, a little cup with 10 pennies. And when I was doing that, but I get the same thing from the George Hamilton green stuff when I'm practicing and it's like, do this 20 times. Don't miss a no, or do this for two minutes without 
stopping or like like all that stuff and i side note i remember that i was starting to do that stuff when i was studying with andy harnsberger and i remember screwing up one night like after a first few lessons i was working on those things and i was like well i got I got all I got, I got to like a minute 50 or whatever and then I screwed up so no big deal and then I could and then I stopped and I heard myself I, I thought to myself all right wait if Harnsberger were here what would he say right now and I could just see like this little tiny Andy Harnsberger I'm like yelling at me like did you do it no go back start again and this is like oh there we go so so there's that what other voices you can you do Brian Harnsberger. what's that what other voices can you do I've got a pretty good Christopher Dean. Let's hear it. And a pretty good Nay Rosaro. <laughs> this reminds me there there was this uh there was this thing that I saw on Facebook a few years ago and it, it was uh, at UNT uh, someone put a photo and it said uh, practice how you perform and it was right before juries and they had taken all the percussion professors and put their pictures on the wall <laughs> so they were staring at you. <laughs> I have that somewhere. I saw that on Facebook too and I thought it was hilarious because they had like a giant one of of Doxotroma. I remember. <laughs> I like that you, um, uh, I, I really like how you describe practicing slow is not this like magic thing that I think a lot of times people think it is. And I always do it with my students, just speaking to Ben's question, are there any other practice things? So of course, you, you also mentioned that, you know, I call it acquisition, like when you're acquiring the music, just like getting it in your hands, getting it in your head. Yeah, you absolutely should like start slow and, 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 and work those notes into your hands. But um Man, like for stickings, for instance, like how you stick something at half tempo might be completely useless at tempo. You know, um, I, I mean, just just think of anything, even just too, something too mallet. You know, I mean, how you stick that, I mean, it may be totally, totally different. So I always in lessons say like, hey, okay, that was great. That was slow. Can you just play like a few bars at tempo? Let's see what that feels like. Or let's feel, let's see what that lick feels like. Play the lick. Yeah, see, that sticking's not going to work. It works at half tempo, but it, it won't even be realistic at, at full tempo. So yeah, you got to check in with at tempo. Um, well, and I, I think the stickings are, um, that probably relates very easily to trombone alternate slide positions. Like there are times where I play notes in a close position and times where I have to extend the slide really far to play it like the same note. Um, and at a slow tempo, I can do whatever, but if I have to play it at the faster tempo, there are certain patterns that I need to use. Um, but I think it goes deeper than that. Like if you get into the kinesiology side of it, um, if you think about every muscle that goes into um, your arm, for example, or your shoulder or whatever that is a part of like, you know, playing the mallet. Every single muscle has a certain amount of like force production and a certain timing that it is coordinated in concert with the other muscles as they engage, right? At a slow tempo, there might be a certain recipe of like, you know, this muscle and this muscle and this muscle. But then when you go at a faster tempo, it is possible that it is a completely different recipe. Like this muscle is actually more engaged in order to make the arm move faster. And so the concept of scaling becomes really important. Not everything in terms of human movement and action is completely scalable, scalable all across the spectrum of tempo and relative time. And so there's a lot of times where you can get caught up in just the wrong scale. And so, you know, it, that's kind of a trickier concept. So I don't really get into it too much. I just say, let's come up with creative ways to practice at tempo. But the truth is, if you went a little bit slower or a little bit faster, but it was the same amount of scaling in terms of what the body's doing to make it happen at that tempo, you're probably fine. Um, but I think that there are a lot of times um, where people can, you know, like go 
half tempo thinking they're just going to be really, really, really accurate when, yeah, they might be really, really, really accurate at that slow tempo, but it's just not going to scale up, like you said. So, I mean, there's, there's, in my opinion, some legit physical concerns, you know, for that not just scaling up. Yeah. I'm, so I've this heard is... That, I was, sorry, I, I was just say I've heard that's why some people use, uh, like, alternating sticky stickings for Porgy and Bess, because, like, the faster you go, you don't get caught up in a weird double somewhere. Sorry, Carly. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is when I was listening to the Bulletproof, Bulletproof Musician podcast and reading the article and thinking about all this, my question for Jason and all of you, if anybody wants to jump in, is do you think this method of practicing at tempo is more useful for experienced musicians and maybe more challenging for younger musicians? Because what Casey mentioned about figuring out stickings, like we all as experienced musicians have a sense of will this work at tempo or do I need to change things? And we know to check that or Earlier in the episode, Ben mentioned roll bass, and we know to figure out the roll bass for the, the whole etude or the whole solo um, in advance, but I see some of my younger students struggle with this and maybe don't know what to do with that. So what do you think about that, Jason? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I actually think it's more valuable uh, the younger you are and kind of the earlier you are in the development of even your basic motor patterns and schema to play the instrument at all. Um, and I, I think that um, the pieces, you know, fifth graders might be playing like Big Rock Candy Mountain or something, right? And so the demands are just not as crazy. I mean, if you think back to beginner band, uh, you know, ensembles, I, I can only imagine the dearth of percussion parts or I should say part that probably existed in the back of the room, they weren't that complicated. And so the, the physical demands of what you needed to play that probably weren't crazy. So to play it and pra or to practice it at tempo, it's probably not that big of a stretch. But the concept of practicing it at tempo, uh, I, I think will pay off down the line. Not only are you developing a lifestyle habit of being able to you know, embrace that as a practice methodology, but I think if you are developing those slightly faster motor patterns and learning how to coordinate them, I think when the rep does get harder, um, you will be more capable to kind of chew through that and learn that. And so I, I, I think that younger students can benefit just as much. Um, and, you know, the difference is, and I guess it depends on how you look at it, but um, we all love dopamine and we all love, you know, success and being correct, you know, and getting through things. We like getting the gold star on the practice chart or whatever. You know, we've all had experiences where we've gotten these little, you know, pats on the back, uh, you know, for like little successes. Yeah, that uh, just uh, ripped through some firefly over there. It's one of his faves, right? But um, there's something to be said for that. And if you slow the metronome down and then you can like play it correctly, um, then yeah, you get that little hit of dopamine that you were successful. Um, but I think if we can just switch the game so that, you know, if you're just playing a couple of notes and you play through it correctly, then that can also be equally as gratifying. But that's where the teacher kind of comes in and can kind of reinforce and define that as being a really good, you know, a good thing, a thing worthy of praise. Um, so I think even from a psychological standpoint, you know, with younger students, um, I, I just, I, I don't see any detriment to teaching them the concept of at tempo practice. Um, and, and I will go and you know, I, I know trombone, yada, yada, who wants to talk about that. But when I was, uh, when I had finished my coursework, I had about three years before I got a full-time uh, college teaching position. And so I, um, it's, it's actually kind of a funny life story. Um, but I, I basically, um, 
was living in Bloomington at the time, Indiana, and I was playing and teaching all over the state of Indiana to the point where I, it, paying rent made no sense. So I bought a $6,000 used beat up crappy RV and I lived in it and just traveled around and did all my gigs. And so I, I, I slapped some solar panels on the roof and I put a garden on the back and I like, I lived in it for two years and just drove around and like did all the gigs. Literally had a middle school call the cops on me because I was that guy in the RV in the school's parking lot, like in between lessons before I was going to go teach the, you know, one student in period one and I had a student in period three. So I was like writing drill in my RV for a high school band, like during period two and the cop shows up, right? He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I, I was doing what the <laughs> What the hell are you doing here, I buddy? Is, I think things just took a turn here, right? Um, but my, my point of the story is that I was teaching about 50 uh, fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, eighth graders. And some of them were beginners, like never, never touched a horn before, you know, they're just starting out. And I did all this stuff with them. We, we, we never slowed anything down. We chunked, we chained, we did all like the, whatever the buzzwords, like we did all the things. I did it the same way that I do with my college students. The only difference is the scope of the repertoire and technical repertoire as well as musical repertoire was a little more simple, you know, because they were playing beginner repertoire and beginner technical level stuff. But the techniques were the same and, and there was no issue with that because they're still human beings. Like, you know, if, if we think about human beings from like a motor learning standpoint, a 14 year old or, you know, a, a 12 year old versus a 17 year old, they're not that much different in terms of their coordination, you know, their ability to like move their bodies there. I mean, you know, there's a wide range of, of, uh, of people in terms of their coordination in general. But it's not like all 12 year olds are like, you know, uh, caterpillars. And then when they're 17, they're butterflies. Like, they're, they're, there's not like that kind of metamorphosis change that's gonna happen in terms of their, their abilities to like learn motor patterns. So I, I, I just, in my experience, I just, I didn't find any detriment even working with younger students. So I, that's cool. probably a long, a couple of tangents that may, may or may not be worth. No, all worth it. Great. I, I, I want to wrap, but I, I, have, I have another question. It's related to speed. I, I'm curious about the kinesthesiology behind why, like, okay, if I can play, if, if, if someone wants to play fast single strokes, right? So you're like, okay, well, one hand can go half that speed, da, 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 da. the other hand can go that speed, da, 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 da. why can't I just put them together? So what is what what's going on like like what what is the physiology as to why i can't sync them up do you know maybe you don't know cuz i i tell cuz 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 speaking of the value of speed i've people ask me about speed sometimes as i'm sure they do all of us but i i often say i think it's more about synchronization of your two hands because you can probably play each hand faster than that actually, but yet you can't do them together. So I almost think it's speed is much more of a coordination kind of thing than yeah, I'm gonna, what we I'm, think I'm, of as traditional speed. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to, to jump in there. Uh, I'm gonna pull out my monocle and my brandy snifter here because I'm gonna say it's not synchronization, it's actually coordination. What's that, that brandy? Is that brandy you've got there? Yeah, that's my brandy. Yeah, gotcha. and I actually I don't bring I don't drink brandy at all, but you know that's kind of the proverbial thing. Right <laughs> so yeah, the the coordination of multiple motor patterns, and what you're basically talking about is doing two uh, cyclical motor patterns that are slightly offset but highly coordinated in terms of when those events need to happen. And so you're really talking about coordinating multiple motor patterns. 
Um, and that's that's a tricky thing. Like that is a more complicated uh, thing. So you're right. You can probably like single, you know, stroke uh, at a certain tempo, but that doesn't mean that you can immediately put it into a double. And and the brass player analogy is single tonguing and double tonguing. Like I can go da 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 da, but if I want to go da it's it's a lot harder to do um, because there's a coordinative you know aspect to it. Um, and a lot of times we talk about strength and like, are we, you know, we, we think we have to get stronger and we got to develop our, you know, even the word chops refers to like muscular development, right? Like just to be stronger to do something. But the truth is a lot of times uh, we, we, we currently possess all the strength that we need, like in our bodies. And, you know, if you're a percussionist and you have picked up luggage or shoveled the driveway or washed dishes or, you know, like the things that you do in regular life in terms of your arm usage, uh, it, it's probably an indicator that your arms are strong enough to do whatever you need to do on percussion instruments. It's more about coordinating and kind of like nuancedly, you know, in a nuanced way, refining and the, the coordination of those movements. And so I think the example of like the, 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 two, the, the two handed roll versus the single handed roll, it's perfect because uh, it is more about coordination. Um, and in order to do one event and then to line up the other event with when, you know, based off of when that first event happens, like that's tricky. It's just, it's just tricky, you know? Uh, and uh, I think if, um, I actually think it's trickier to do it slowly. Uh, if you start slowly and you go, duh, 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 you kind of give yourself a false sense of the amount of time you have to think about where that upbeat right. or where that other is going to go. And at some point, you need to figure out a way to not have to think so hard about that. It just becomes more of a rhythmic, like like a global rhythmic idea, right? And so you almost have to prune away any conscious processing centers in the brain that are fixated on when to place that upbeat or when to place that other arm, and to prune that out of the mix. Like that's that's kind of cumbersome, and and I would argue that's just a less efficient way to do it. So I, I, all right. I'm gonna ask this next question in a um, um, in in this fashion because I need to wrap. How would you give your job your, your job interview answer to? Do you have a go to solution for students that are just having struggles with motivation related to practice? Because it's related, I know it's it's kind of a tangent, but I think it's so related to practice. And and like I was saying so long ago in the episode, I feel like. A, a very a more mysterious problem is not like, hey, what you do in the practice room, but just like, hey, just you need to get in the freaking practice room. Right. How do you get the kids in the room? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, to some extent, if, if, if we're talking about like being a teacher at like the college level, for example, and we're talking about developing a studio, then I think we're also talking about de developing the, like a culture for that studio and if there is a culture of excellence and if there is a culture of motivation um, and so if i'm in a job interview then my answer would be geared toward talking to other faculty about how i would develop that culture cool and yeah. one of the things i would say is that um it's probably not with the seniors to be honest they are the most entrenched in whatever the culture was before i got there um, it's probably going to be more in the freshmen uh, and sophomores, the underclassmen, who I think will probably be a little bit more open-minded to new ideas, a little more malleable. And so it would be about developing a culture of, of excellence and motivation and getting them in the practice room. And so one of the things that I would do is probably develop some kind of freshman ensemble 
where it's just the freshmen playing in one ensemble and we all work together and we all, you know, have that opportunity where we're not, you know, on the one hand, they can get motivated and inspired by what they see like juniors and seniors doing. But on the other hand, that can also be a detractor. Like that can bring people down to a certain level of mediocrity. And I think every teacher has to, um, oh, I'm sorry, you asked for the job interview answer. So I got to be a little more. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, so I would say that I would probably start with uh, some kind of freshman chamber ensemble. And I would look for a unique and interesting repertoire that meets them at their level. And I would approach that class as the kind of flagship class for changing the culture for two, three, four years down the line. Right. If I can get them all to buy into, uh, you know, valuing the practice logs, even comparing with each other a little bit, I, I you know, how great would it be if I had a bar graph and studio class that showed kind of where everybody's at in their practicing, not naming names, but just kind of showed like what the average studio practice time is, or, oh, these people that made this ensemble, their average practice time was this, you know, if there were ways where I could quantify the results, almost like a game, almost like the gaming industry where you're just trying to get kids to level up and in every game um, to level up, that level is going to be harder to achieve. And so you have to buy in a little bit more. And so it's all about figuring out where they're at, and what is that next level that's not a huge stretch for them to buy into? Getting them right. to buy into that and then getting them to buy into the next level and the next level and the next level. And if I can do that with my freshmen, and then when they become sophomores, then maybe now I have an undergraduate or like a, an under, to, what do you say, a lower division, underclassman ensemble, mm -hmm. something like that. And then in my third year, I, I would have a, like, you know, maybe a senior ensemble, but then I would also have like a freshman, sophomore, junior, you know, type of ensemble. And then in my fourth year, I might have like, a, you know, a percussion ensemble, like, you know, everybody's, you know, kind of in the pool. Um, and I would probably cool. work at it that way. Very cool. It's, you know, coincidentally, when they hired me here, our trombone professor was on my committee and asked me this exact question. Like, what do you, what would you recommend for a struggling student? And I, I talked about culture of like this, like long-term plan and just kind of getting it in the blood and just like infecting everyone with the good, the good bug. Uh, Bill Kahn says you got to you got to get the practice bug. Do you have a quick answer for like okay, what about that poor senior that in one semester they've been in this you know let's say they've been in a non-existent practice culture their whole time here and what can you do to salvage them for for uh, uh, help them as best you can in one semester for motivation? Well, I definitely have experience with this one, um, and and what I have done is it's it's a similar it's essentially a very similar approach hey, here are these practice logs. I find that this is a really helpful way to do it. And sometimes they're resistant to that. Um, but it doesn't take that many. I mean, how many lessons in a row does a student need to come in, play like crap, and, and have us basically say, all right, how was that? You know, And they, they know. I, I, I've yet to find a student that's like nailed it when they totally did not nail it, right? They know. So then it, rather than putting an ego-based judgment on that, it's more about, okay, well, how, like, how did we get here? What did you do? Like, how, what got you this far? You know, and everything's about, like, everything you did got you to where you are, and everything you didn't do is what, you know, is keeping you from getting to the next place, right? So you can celebrate what people do, and then you can just inform them and try to enlighten them as to all that other stuff that needs to be done. Um, and it's all about just, you know, figuring out where they're at and just trying to get them to be a little bit, you know, further along. I'm at a position now where I actually have like freshmen and sophomores that are outplaying my juniors and seniors. Um, and, and frankly, I don't, 
I don't take joy in anybody feeling bad about that because it's not about making people feel bad, but that is the nature of what's going to happen if the culture rises and the level of investment rises. That is a natural byproduct. So, and I find that when that happens, nothing motivates a senior from getting beat out of that, whatever position they wanted in whatever ensemble, when they get beat up as sophomore, that is, that's some strong motivation. And so when that day comes, and I fully expect it to happen at a new job, when that day comes, I have a very frank talk with that student. Because if a student comes in and they're upset in their lesson that they didn't get what they wanted, I can say, well, you can keep doing what you're doing, in which case you will keep getting what you're getting, or you can up your game. And if you want to up your game, I got a lot of ways to do that. And then they're, you know, at that point, they seem to be a little bit more open-minded toward Okay, so now you're going to fill out the practice log this week, right? Because that's this is totally going to help us. We need to figure out what you're spending your time on or if you're not. And the truth is, most of the time that a student is resistant to filling out a practice log, it's because they don't really practice that much. It's, it's far less common that it's a student who practices all the time. They're just not into filling out forms. Like that's usually not what we find. We usually find it's the kids that just don't do a lot, you know? And if they're not doing a lot in the practice room, they don't want to fill out the practice log, okay, fine. Um, and my, my response to that is always, well, it shouldn't take you that long to fill it out then. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're only doing one unit of 15 minutes a day, it shouldn't take you that long. So what's the problem? And then that also kind of removes the whole, like, as I think they're also concerned that I'm going to judge them when the practice log comes back with one unit a day. And so they don't want to do it. Right. So I just, I, I kind of immediately remove that from the equation without even having to talk about it. And mm -hmm. so and that that's also helpful. And so with some of my seniors, who have started to kind of drink the punch a little bit this, you know, in, in their last semester. Um, and if they have a recital coming up, one unit on this piece, one unit on this piece, one unit on this piece, if that's all you got, here we go. We're gonna get it as good as we can with the time we have. You know, and I just, I remove the whole making people feel bad about what they're doing or not doing or whatever. I, like if they wanna feel that way, that's on them. I don't wanna put them on, on you know, I don't wanna put that on them. Um, so I find that that's been a really healthy way to kind of go about it. And I've had some students that have kind of, you know, drunk the punch in that senior year. And I've had some students that have not. And the ones that have not, you know, they they, they either pass or they don't pass and they move on. And, and they're really, I didn't have much time to work with them. And so it is what it is. I, I try to change what I, you know, I try to, I try to help as many as I can, you know, and, and I try to, every time I run into a challenge with a student, I always ask myself, what could I be doing? Like, is there anything else I could do? Is there another way I could approach this? Is there another way I could say it? Can I get creative with how I do it with the student? But at the end of the day, it's on them. And I think that their successes are on them as well. When they are successful, I hate having to humble brag my way through CVs, you know, with saying I've got students that did this and I've got students that did that because it's not me. They are the ones that went out and did that. And so I, I try to put that back on them because it's all, it's there. They should get the credit for that, you know? And in my own social media or whatever, I congratulate those students for doing it. You know, I don't, it's not on me. So, you know, that's just a brief little aside, I guess. Wow, very cool. And by the way, I'm sorry. I don't seem to have short answers for anything. So the next time you ask if I have a short answer, I should just start with no, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's really, really great. Man, thanks so much, Jason Solomon. And Brian, thanks so much for bringing him to us. Great pick. MVP. Oh, Brian, you're the MVP of Had episode. Had to unmute for that thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, just so you all know, Brian just unmuted and gave us a silent thumbs up. It was a beautiful thumbs up, Brian. <laughs> this has been fun. You know, I, I, I hope I didn't data dump too much, but I, I just unmuted. Oh, it's great. 
I, I am very passionate about sharing. Uh, I've had a lot of time to think about things. And so I'm very passionate about trying to share, you know, my, you know, take on things and people can take it and, you know, do stuff with it or not. And that's fine. But I, I love the, you know, I love the fact that you have this podcast or are you calling it a podcast? Yeah. Okay. I love that you have this podcast and that you are getting together and you're having these conversations and that you're sharing with people. I think that's just so important for our industry, you know, in our community. So, so thank you. For yeah, thank you. No, thank you. And um, it, it's so important what you're doing, because as the world gets more competitive, and we get more people out there competing, we're going to have to find more ways to get clever. You know, it's uh, the hey, whoever practiced more and longer in the practice room always gets the gig like that's going to start to apply less and less because <laughs> once everyone's done 12 hours a day, we'll it's going to come down to who used the 12 hours better. So it's cool yeah. that, that uh, yeah, that, that you have this research and that you're uh, connecting kinesiology and, um, and, and your musicianship together like this. It's really great. Well, thank you. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thank you. We'll catch you on uh, 263. Carly, why don't you tell everyone to join the Patreon? Just tell them to do it. Yeah, everybody, join our Patreon, please. Yeah, yeah, Show just... us that you appreciate what we're doing. Good. All right. Bye, everybody. See you later.